my theme is how my pastoral ministry shapes my pulpit ministry. That's the topic I was assigned. It's a tension for me to approach this because all my energy flows in another direction, namely how God and how Christ and how the cross and how faith and how heaven and how hell and how the Bible shapes my pulpit ministry rather than how my pastoral experience shapes my pulpit ministry. But I I was assigned it, and so I'm going to make a stab at it. The way I approach it will reveal where my emphasis falls, however. I frankly feel endangered not by fear that I will be uncontrolled, uninfluenced, and unshaped by my context. I feel danger and that I will fail to be controlled by the Bible. So all all my energies flow towards bringing my life and my pulpit and my family and my energies into conformity to the Word of God and the realities I see there because there are a thousand voices trying to conform me to the world and and my indwelling sin is very eager to agree with those voices and therefore most of my energy is working in another direction than uh, trying to figure out how my pastoral ministry should shape my pulpit ministry. Rather, it's how my experience with the Bible should shape my pastoral ministry and shape my my pulpit. But pastoral ministry does shape our pulpit ministry and should in significant ways. So I'm going to begin with however many I can fit in of 16 points on how No, that's just the first half of the message. How many of 16 points I I can fit into how God and the Bible shape my preaching. And then the second half is 16 points on how my pastoral ministry shapes. And I'm, I'm seeing I have 67 minutes and 54 seconds left to do that in. So let me pray for help and we'll go at it. Father in heaven, I pray that you would make me wise in which of these points I should leave out, if any, and help me not to spend too much time on one that doesn't deserve it and neglect another that does, and grant that the pace would not be distracting but helpful, and I pray that you would make mighty preachers here that are shaped profoundly, deeply, decisively, primarily, overwhelmingly by the scriptures and by the realities in them, and secondarily by their pastoral ministry. So God, come and help me to be faithful to your word now and to make plain what you have shown me over the years and 
give these brothers and sisters discerning minds so that they let go anything that's unbiblical or unwise and and embrace and be deeply affected by whatever is biblical and true. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a list of foundational convictions concerning my vision for preaching, and then we turn to the influence of pastoral ministry upon pulpit ministry. Number one, this is the list of foundational convictions. Oh, by the way, just it would affect your note-taking or the way you pay attention. All my notes from last night are at the Desiring God website now. My son stayed up late. Abraham's here, and he stayed up late tweaking those notes, cleaning them up, and so all the quotes from last night, everything last night is there. Same thing, these 20 pages will be online here uh, before the day is over. And so just, why don't you just put your notes down and, uh, and just listen. And uh, I wish we could have a Q&A afterwards, but it'll be hard getting all this anyway. Number one, God predestined us and created us for the praise of the glory of his grace. It's Ephesians 1, verse 6. He predestined us for adoption as sons under the praise of the glory of his grace. I preach because God created you and all my people to praise the glory of his grace. That's conviction number one. Number two, no one by nature wants to live for the praise of the glory of the grace of God. We all want to live for the praise of the glory of ourselves or our tribe. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of glory. They've, they've traded away glory of God and embraced the glory of other things, especially the thing they see in the mirror, which is our favorite idol. And so nobody wants to do what God created them to do. Number three, therefore, every person is accountable to God and guilty with no excuse and is under his just and holy wrath. We are all in rebellion against God's purpose for our lives, namely that we we would praise the glory of his grace. And we don't want to do that. We want to praise other things, especially get praise for ourselves. And therefore, we're in rebellion. Therefore, we're accountable. We're guilty. We're under his wrath. And that's what everybody is like to whom you preach, no matter what city they live in. Number three, number four, the final expression of that wrath is eternal hell of torment cut off from the presence of God and all that is good. I cannot overstate how hell affects my ministry. I listen to a preacher for just a while to see if I smell the belief in hell. And if I don't, I pray for him. And I'm concerned. Whether his demeanor or his doctrine or whatever just doesn't smell like he believes in it. And that's tragic. Because that's what's at stake. You're not just tweaking people's lives. You're not just fixing their marriages or fixing their health or fixing their jobs or fixing their personalities and their depression. You're rescuing them from hell. This is the great passion from hell for God. It's a rescue operation and shaping them into the kind of people that love to praise the grace that did that for them. 
That's number four. Number five, the plight of all men on the way to that punishment is that they are spiritually dead and blind and morally unable to see Christ as true and beautiful. So on the, on the way to hell, all the people you preach to are dead, which means they're blind. They don't want what you have to say. They want you to itch their ears. Ephesians 2, 1, you were all dead in trespasses and sins. Romans 8, 8, 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So that's who you're, ta- you're talking to. You're talking to Lazarus in the grave. And he's on his way to hell. And he is not the least interested in the truth. Number six. People are rescued from this deadness and this destiny of destruction by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in their place. I'm going to talk about that tonight in great detail, and so I won't spend a lot of time now. Just the Son of Man appeared not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So his giving his life as a ransom is the key, the rock-solid foundation for how anybody gets rescued from this dead destruction path that they're on. Number seven, this atonement is applied to specific people in the new birth through the preaching of the Word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. First Peter Chapter 1, verse 23, we were born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That's an amazing verse to me. I just haven't been able to get over it in the past three or four weeks as I've worked on this doctrine of regeneration. The attachment of God's begetting through the word to my believing is amazing for a preacher. It's amazing. There's no doubt in the New Testament what means God uses to perform the miracle of wakening people from the dead. It is the word of God through the living and abiding word of God, which in verse 25, he defines as the gospel. People are made alive. All these dead people we're talking to are suddenly through the word by the Spirit, quickened in new birth, made alive. They see. Oh, the glory of the preaching ministry. Number eight, preaching the Word of God continues in the life of the believer and the life of the church as a God-designed means of bringing about the reason for our creation Namely, the praise of the glory of God's grace. Now, this may seem obvious to you since you all are on your way into preaching. If not all of you, but a lot of you are on your way. You think, why would you even say that? 
Well, because it's not obvious from the New Testament that preaching belongs in the life of the church. Almost all the preaching in the New Testament is evangelistic outside the church. I have to work hard to defend my job. So try it sometime. Try to defend preaching in in church from the New Testament. You will not find it easy. I still do it after 27 years because I believe it's there. And I'll give you one of the texts that defines me and how I conceive of the life of the church in relation to preaching. And it's 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 4, 4. Starts with all scriptures breathed out by God, gets to chapter 4 and goes like this. This is the most amazing charge in the Bible. The piling up of words in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 4 is amazing. It goes like this. I charge you, Paul to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. What an introduction. I charge you in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ, Who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing, by his kingdom? All of that just to set up the three words, preach the word. And the word there is not teach. I love teaching. This word is keruso. Herald. Herald the word. Announce the word. Declare the word. And this is a church context. Because it goes on like this. Timothy Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, reprove, exhort in complete patience and teaching, in teaching, herald in teaching, herald in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. These are Christians, supposedly. These are people in church. They will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That is the clearest warning in the New Testament about being seeker-driven. There are people who will accumulate for themselves teachers who will please their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. All of that is addressed to a pastor. So I I hear the the apostle telling me, Piper, before God and before his angels, and in the name of the one who's coming to judge the living and the dead by his kingdom and by his peering, you better stand up there and herald my news. Don't you just talk about it. Don't you just explain it. You better herald it. This is news, man. You better lift up your voice and make them know something's going on here. More than just something to be explained. This is Caruso. This is heralding. This is announcing. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The king has a message for you this morning. Listen up, folks. Number nine. Preaching is more than teaching. It is rising. It is the rising of the preacher's heart to exult over the exposition of truth. It is both exposition of biblical text and exaltation over the reality in those 
texts. And I base that on the vocabulary of preaching in the Bible. Vocabulary like this. Keruso, heralding. Katangelo, proclaiming. Euangelizo, announcing. Those are not didaskomai words, merely. If you are just a teacher, you shouldn't stand in the pulpit. This is a calling to herald, a calling to announce, a calling to say news, news, news. Because if you don't, your whole body and your whole demeanor is lying about the magnificence of what you're trying to explain. This is not a recipe. This is the very word of God by which people can move into everlasting joy in the presence of God and escape everlasting torments. It should have somewhat of an effect on you. Number 10, this form of speech is designed by God. This form of speech, meaning preaching, is designed by God to correspond to his aim in creation and redemption to be glorified by his creatures in their knowing him and enjoying him. I'm going to read you the most important paragraph I've ever read in Jonathan Edwards because it defines for me so biblically and so helpfully why I believe in preaching the way I do. Here's the paragraph. God glorifies himself toward the creatures also in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding, I believe with all my might in being crystal clear, logic sharp, accurate, helpful in the way we explain the Bible. Explain. Very important part of preaching. That's number one. God appears to our understanding. Number two, in communicating himself to their hearts. And in their rejoicing and delighting and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. And then here comes the most important sentence I've ever read in Edwards. God is glorified not only in his glories being seen, but in its being rejoiced in. That's the most important sentence I've ever read in Jonathan Edwards. It shaped my whole life 30 years ago. I've devoted my entire life to trying to unpack that sentence. God is relating to his son in Logos and to his spirit in love. And in Logos and love, Logos and joy and satisfaction in the very heart of the Trinity, there now flows out a created world which is supposed to glorify him. How? By knowing him in Logos ways and rejoicing him in spirit ways. I am seeking those who will worship me in spirit and in truth. This is so deeply rooted in the Godhead. I hope you see it. And I hope your preaching is shaped by it. Number 11. Therefore, preaching is worship. It does not follow worship. It is worship. There is no break. There are not two halves to this worship service. One worship 
and the other something else. What you do when you stand with the Bible under your nose is expository exaltation. That's my definition of preaching. Expository exaltation. You exposit what is really there and you exult over the worth of it. And if your people don't see you exulting over the worth of it, what are you communicating about it? It's just an alternative lifestyle or something like that. Just we do, we do Christianity. What do you do? We just, we, 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 we think in these categories. No way. This is infinitely valuable. Number 11, or was that 11? That was 11. Number 12, therefore, preaching corresponds to the design of God to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Expository, exaltation, truth, spirit. Number 13, therefore, preaching always is always more, but never less than the exposition of Scripture. Preaching is always more, but never less than the exposition of, of Scripture. So here's the best definition of exposition I've ever read. It comes from John Stott, Between Two Worlds, one of the best books on preaching I've ever read. I love it. I love John Stott. He's an old man now living down in the southern part of England. He loses his place when he preaches now and doesn't preach much anymore. And I praise God for his life. I was sitting in a little room all by myself in Elliot dorm, which had now been torn down to my great sadness at Wheaton College, and opening a little yellow book called Men Made New in 1967. It was just an exposition of Romans 5 to 8. And he complained in his book on preaching, written about 20 years later, that the book had no windows in it, meaning no illustrations. When I read that sentence, I just screamed out loud. I was sitting at Marlene Johnson's cabin on the front lawn in a bathing suit, reading his book on preaching. And I said, no way, no way. That book changed my life. Don't put windows in your next book. <laughs> Maybe I'm different, but I didn't need any windows. I didn't need any windows. He was just going verse by verse, showing me stuff I'd never seen. I didn't know you could get this much out of the Bible. I love John Stott. So here's what he said. It is my contention that all true Christian preaching is, is expository preaching. Of course, if by expository sermon is meant verse by verse explanation of a lengthy passage of the Bible, then indeed it is only one possible way of preaching. But this would be a misuse of the word. Properly speaking, exposition has a much broader meaning. It refers to the content of the sermon, biblical truth, rather than its style, running commentary. To expound scripture is to bring out of the text what is there and expose, expose it to view. The expositor pries open what appears to be closed, makes plain what is obscure, unravels what is knotted and unfolds what is tightly packed. The opposite of exposition is imposition which is to impose on the text what is not there. But the text in question could be a verse or a sentence or even a single word. It could equally be a paragraph or a chapter or a whole book. 
The size of the text is immaterial, so long as it is biblical. What matters is what we do with it. Whether it is long or short, our responsibility as expositors is to open it up in such a way that it speaks its message clearly, plainly, accurately, and relevantly. That's a great definition of exposition. I commend it to you. Number 14. People are changed into God-glorifying lovers of Christ by seeing Jesus Christ in the fullness of his biblical beauty through spirit-anointed expository exaltation. Shorten that down. People are biblically changed into the image of Christ by seeing the glory of Christ in Bible-saturated expository exaltation. And you know the verse that I'm thinking about, namely 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face, beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. That verse is right up in the top ten of influential in the Bible for me in preaching. People are... We are being changed as we behold the glory of the Lord. So what's my job? I want to change people. What's my job? I must help them see Christ. They must see him in his richness, in his fullness, in his glory. You know, this is a very big book. There's a lot in here. And Jesus, in commenting about that much of it, said... You search the scriptures, it is they that were written of me. So, you haven't finished. There's lots to do. And your people need to see him all over the Bible. Because that's how they get changed. Here's another key verse. This one is so important because I want my people to meet God, not just to meet me, not just to meet the word, not just to meet ideas about God. I want to meet God. So listen to this verse from 1 Samuel 3, 21. Amazing verse. Helpful verse. Preaching, altering verse. 1 Samuel 3, 21. The Lord appeared again. Mark the word appeared. Don't you want that to happen on Sunday morning? He didn't show up visibly. Listen to what happens. For Samuel 3.21, the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Wow. Yes, it can happen. It can happen. If I could bring to my mouth a faithful restatement in the power of the Holy Spirit of the word of the Lord, God would appear. In and through the word so that people would see him and they'd be changed. I don't do change lists. I just not into lists. I hardly ever talk about biblical principles of stuff. I don't do principles. I do Jesus. I want to lift up Christ and his ways and his work and his purposes in such a, a full, rich way that people are caught up into another world, another realm of reality. And, and then they, they do diapers differently. 
They shop and cook and do computer and internet and audio. All of it is just in another realm. We have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. You've got to help your people rise and count themselves dead here and living in another whole world. That's number 14, 15. The glories of God in Jesus Christ are not meant to be the foundation of your preaching. They're meant to be the content of your preaching. They're meant to be the main thing we preach about to which other things are leading. I say it this way just because I get really fed up, frankly, with going to conferences and or listening and, and uh, hearing so much non-Bible. And I ask kind of around, like, well, don't you believe in the Bible here? I mean, it's in your affirmation of faith. Like, this is God's word. Why don't we hear more of it? And, and the answer is almost always the same. Oh, that's, we believe that. That's foundational. We assume that. That's foundational. I say, well, get it out of the foundation and put it in the kitchen. Nobody, nobody, nobody remodels the cement block of their basement. People are always worried about the little pink triangles on their 1950s pink counter. They want that out of there so it gets a counter because they live up here. They live up here. This woman lives here all day long and she wants a kitchen that looks admirable. She doesn't give a rip about what the foundation looks like. So I'm not impressed by that answer. These glorious truths in the Bible are not there to be hidden in the basement while you talk about other things. I'm talking about the value and the worth of Jesus, the triumphs of Jesus, the knowledge of Jesus, the wisdom, the authority, the providence, the power, the purity, the trustworthiness, the justice, the patience, the endurance, the wrath, the grace, the love. That's enough to keep you going for a lifetime. Talk about him. Make it so absolutely glorious. They got to come back and hear the next installment about King Jesus rather than just, oh, my goodness, what? Another little pep talk about how you can do better at work or something. It's just so sad, so sad that people... All I can conclude is that, that there are pastors who are not moved by their Bibles. They're just not moved. They, they read them and they say, oh, this is supposed to be my job. And I'm supposed to talk about this. But frankly, I find this new, new book about church planting or this new book about marriage or this new book about what? Really? This is fascinating. I'm energized here, but here... This thing, this does not energize me. That's all I can conclude. Number 16. This is the last one. And we've got 39 minutes to go. I think we're going to do it. We got 16 more. I mean, 16 more after this one. The one you really came to hear about, not these. This is the last one that I really care about, and then I'll do the ones I'm supposed to care about. <laughs> Number 16, in preaching, I am jealous to show people the very words of the Bible in which I see the glories of God in the path of Christ-exalting joy. So what I mean by that is that I, 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 I teach a little class on preaching to about 10 or 11 guys every year, and the hardest thing to get them to do 
uh, is to actually refer to the text when they are quoting the text. In other words, I'm sitting there with my Bible open in my lap, and they start preaching. They've got a 15-minute sermon or a 20-minute sermon they're supposed to preach, and they said, as it says in John three sixteen, for God so loved... I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't do this, but whoa, whoa. point me, point me, show me. I want to see this. One text in here, another text out, another finger, I mean, one finger in here, another one out here. You're showing your people where you're getting your points. And there's a big reason for that. This book has authority. I don't have any. To the degree that I persuade people of my ideas without showing them that it's right here and they can see it. They can see it over lunch, after the service. They can talk about it as a family right out of that book. To the degree that I detract them from this, I raise up their dependence on me and I reduce their dependence on the book. You don't want to do that. The Lord will spank you. That's the end of the first half. Number, that's 16 basic convictions that govern how I think about preaching. Now we do what I'm assigned to do. Some examples of how my pastoral ministry affects, shapes my preaching. This is not unimportant. I, I'm, I'm saying it, it's less important than it is, but I don't want to say by that it's unimportant. So number one, and I have 16 of these. I don't know if we'll make it or not, but we'll do what we can. Then we'll stop when that clock says zero. Number one, two pastoral experiences. That's basically what I'm doing here. I, I just sat down for a few hours and I wrote down memories of my life as a pastor and how it got into my pulpit. That's what I did. I don't know if that's what I was supposed to do, but I enjoyed doing it. <laughs> two stories to uh, confirm how deeply I am persuaded that the glory of God held up for himself without almost any application to people's lives can have profound practical effect. Number one story. It is, I, I checked this out online. All my preaching is online, which is really embarrassing because um, all your weaknesses show and everything you've ever said is there to be read and listened to. This is 1984, the uh, New Year's Day sermon. I went and looked at it. You can look at it this afternoon. The New Year's Day sermon, Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. I resolved in my head as a new pastor. I've been there three, four years. And I said, Lord, I'm going to preach a sermon on New Year's Day with zero application. I'm going to lift up the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had three wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one said to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. I'm just going to talk about that with no application. I'm just going to do everything in my power to make that look really big. There was a woman in the church who did me a cross stitch of that sermon, which hung on my mantle for years of Jesus sitting on a throne with all of Minneapolis skyline underneath him and the train of his robe winding through the skyscrapers. <gasps> yes, she got it. So. In the audience, I did not know this, was a family with three daughters. I think they were about, the youngest was two, four, and eight, something like that. And that very week, they had discovered she'd been, they'd all been sexually abused for the last several years by um, a relative. 
venereal warts, all that stuff. Horrible, horrible. I didn't know anything about it. Didn't know about it for three months. And then it all came out in the church. I dealt with family. And the dad came to me one day and he said, John, this has been hellish. This has been the worst experience I ever imagined having, having, ever imagined having. You know what's gotten us through? New Year's Day and the holiness of God. (laughs) What's that? Not a word of application to sexual abuse. Not a word. Just lift him up. Make sure everybody knows he is magnificent. He's a rock. He's above it all. He is mighty to save. And and it was like a rock. He said it was just like a rock. Everything was falling down except that. The effect of a a 38-year-old pastor who's just trying to figure out what do you do, what, what the emphases of your ministry should be, was huge. It was huge. Here's the second story. Not unlike this. This is 1987, October. A couple in their 50s, maybe 40s. can't remember exactly. She's still in the church. During the first service, we had two services. During the first service, he collapses. Her husband collapses. They rush him and her to the hospital. She goes with him in the ambulance. I'm told between the services that he is... What, what, don't know, heart attack. We had about half an hour between the services. Just before I walk in to the preach, the second time they came and they said, he's dead. I thought, oh no. Everybody knew these people. And uh, I walked into the pulpit. Uh, and in my opening, I told everybody what was happening. And I said, we need to pray now. So we had a season of prayer and I'm, I'm inside I'm thinking I'm new I don't know what do you do with this uh, do you have the service or do you have a different kind of service or what um, very sober spirit came over the service she's down at the hospital Hemet County and he's dead and, and I, I said I said Lord I'll just try to do what we plan to do and I'll do it in as much of a spirit of reverence and respect as I can just before I stood up to preach my sermon she walked in the balcony door and sat down. Here's a woman who half an hour ago, her husband died. And she came back from Henry County, about four blocks away, and sat down just as I'm beginning to preach. And I saw her. I thought, you know what my text was? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It was the first Sunday, second Sunday of my, of my uh, Malachi series. And that verse comes from verse 3, 2 and 3 of Malachi 1. And my whole sermon was about the absolute sovereignty of God. I was going to go to Romans 9, finish it off. And I said, Lord, I don't know why she came back, but I just will say this. So I preached with all my heart what I was going to preach about the absolute sovereignty of God. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And I ended and went and stood by the door of here. You stand by the door in the old sanctuary right over there and shake hands as people leave. Almost everybody's gone. She makes her way down and she comes to the door, hug, cry. And I said to her, why in the world are you here? And she said, 
I needed the word. And you gave it to me. And I thank you. It's just the sheer rock solid reality that people need. They need lots of other things. But there is something about just the sheer greatness of God that is missing in people's lives. They don't know it's missing. They don't know what they're missing. And our job is to give them what they need, not just what they think they need. Number two, I find that in talking to people that many do not have a heart relationship with Christ, but only a head knowledge, they tell me that over time, my passion has awakened theirs. What am I supposed to make of that? Well, it's scary because I am so sinful. And if they knew my struggles, if they knew how my wife and I are so ordinary and get upset at each other and how I kick my dog. (laughs) And I like my dog. So they they don't know me very well. And they're telling me that their hearts have come alive along with their heads now. Not just because I explained things they didn't understand, but because I uh, exult over those things in a way that lets them see and feel what it might be like if they were to see the beauty of those things. And God uses that to... Bring them a little bit along. And it just confirms to me. God has ordained preaching. Not just explaining. He has ordained preaching. He has ordained that there be in churches. Elders. Could be a team of them. Could be one. Doesn't matter. Who stand before the people. Open their Bible. And be what the Bible says to be about this. If it's hell, you're trembling or you're crying. And if it's this, you're doing this. And which, which, of course, means for you that the main work in the ministry is to be. Right? Not to do, to do right stuff. The main challenge is to be a kind of person I mean, my main battle in the ministry is to get on my knees over my Bible and say, do this to me. Do this to me. If you don't do this to me and make me this way, what what am I going to do? Just talk about it. Just talk about communion with God. Talk about joy and suffering. Just do. Just talk about it. What good is that if it's not happening to me? Which means we're all desperate. Is that where you're fighting the battle? You fight to be a kind of responder to the Bible before you're an actor in front of your your people. Number three, I'm aware of my pastoral, in my pastoral life, that we are surrounded by a sea of postmodern relativism that belittles propositional truth, justifies it, justifies that belittling by pointing to dead churches that love their propositions. And the effect... This has on me 
is to confirm my commitment to be alive and passionate in my use of propositions. We were talking the other day, I think I was talking with Abraham about this at Annie's parlor. And we were talking about what, what do you do in response to people gravitating toward the emergent out of reaction to dead propositional churches? What, what do you do about that? And, and my answer was, try to explode as many stereotypes of propositionalists as I can when it comes to joy and passion and zeal and authenticity and engagement and social relevance. I just grieve over how many truths are being forsaken because the people who say those truths don't live those truths. Don't feel those truths. Don't exult over those truths. So I don't have a strategy to become like them. I just say, look, if what the Bible says is true and real, <laughs> you've got to be different in your response to it or you're communicating. It's just not true. Number four, how my pastoral ministry affected my commitment to Bible memorization. A little story. Bible. This is a this is an argument for Bible memorization for the sake of the pulpit. All right. Brand new pastor, maybe a year or two into it. And I get a call that Roland Erickson, the grand old man of our church, the number one patriarch, wife just had a heart attack there at North Memorial Hospital. Would you come? And I bolted. I want to be a good pastor. I'm get there faster than the ambulance if I can. And and I show up and I forgot my Bible. Now, in those days, I felt naked without my Bible. And so, oh my, I forgot my Bible. I walk into the waiting room. The waiting room is packed with relatives. And I give Roland a big hug, ask how she's doing, and go around trying to weep with those who weep. And she's going to make it. She did make it that time. They're both in heaven now. But Roland turned to me with everybody listening. He said, Pastor John, give us a word from the word. <laughs> I blew it so bad. I just, I think I quoted John 3.16. <laughs> Prayed with as much earnestness as I could. I went home. He was very gracious. He loved me to death. All of my ministry. What a great man. But I went home. I got down on my knees. And I opened my Bible. To Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. He will help her right early. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of the hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has wrought desolations to the ends of the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariots with fire. Be still. And know that I am God. I'm exalted among the nations. I'm exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. I nailed it. And I said, Lord, that will never happen again. 
That will never happen again. I was so angry at myself for letting that family down. Bible memory from that day to this has been very essential to me. Every day I'm working on it. Know your Bible by heart. My dad told me that my grandfather, Elmer, probably could recite the entire New Testament from memory. I didn't believe him. Still don't believe him. He always exaggerated. (laughs) But it meant something. And I'm sure what it meant was huge. And so I just plead with you. Fill your mind with this infinitely valuable holy book. The television, the internet, they're trying to fill your mind. You cooperating? Hardly anybody's trying to fill your mind with the Bible. You're going to resist? You're going to fight? You're going to lay down? Get steamrolled over by your culture? Or are you going to fill your mind with the Word of God so that it just tumbles out of you in the hospital and in the pulpit? That's number three. Number four. Nope. Got my... That's number four. Number five. My awareness of the context of American wealth has moved me to return fairly often to the New Testament emphasis on wartime lifestyle and highlights radical generosity for the sake of the kingdom's advance and for the sake of your own soul. So here's the point. As I look around my city, I see wealth everywhere. Even in the poorest neighborhood where I live, wealth everywhere. Because I'm aware of the third world. I'm aware that 800 million people have nothing. They live from meal to meal. Jesus was talking to people like that, more or less, when he said, give us this day our daily bread. It's hard for us to play that. My people are filthy rich. And so am I. And the older I get, the more dangerous it becomes. I just feel it like a wolf at my door. That I become soft at 62. I have a new brown leather couch that's supposed to become flesh temperature in 11 seconds if you sit with shorts on it. I really like this couch. (laughs) And it's so dangerous to like this couch because I'm getting old and I don't want to get soft. The world is perishing. And my people, including myself, are filthy rich. And we start to call needs what are wants. And we have multiple cars and multiple houses and multiple everything and way more coats in the closet than we can use. Oh, my goodness, we're we're rich. And how easy for that to have no impact on the pulpit. What impact does it have on your pulpit? It brings me back again and again. I'm not I'm. This is a huge risk. I have people regularly on my case for legalism in this area. And 
my response, if I'm not gracious at that moment, is worth the risk. It's worth the risk. I will risk being thought of as legalistic to get in rich people's face about their lifestyles. Because when I open my Bible, let me say something about the first two-thirds of your Bible. Something profound happened with the coming of Jesus. In the Old Testament, we have a come-see religion. And in the New Testament, we have a go-tell religion. In the come-see religion, you needed gold everywhere on your temple. In the go-tell religion, you don't need a temple. So if you spend all your time going back there and finding these verses about prosperity in the Old Testament, you're making a hermeneutical mistake. When Jesus came into the world, he had no place to lay his head. And they killed him. And he said, don't take two pairs of shoes. Blessed are the poor. They were choked by the cares and riches and the pleasures of life. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. A person's life does not consist in his possessions. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures in earth. Seek his kingdom and everything will be added to you that you need. Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Sell your possessions and give alms. Whoever does not renounce all that he has can't be my disciple. How hard it will be for the rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Woe to those who desire to be rich and fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Everywhere you run into this, what, what effect should it have? You have to take some risks here. You have to take the risk of being called hypocritical because you got a nice car too. And you live in a pretty nice neighborhood. You got to take that risk. If you shut your mouth because you know you're guilty, who's going to tell them? You just got to take some risks. It might affect your lifestyle. I hope it does. You know what? Heaven's coming real soon. You remember the story of John Newton? I'm, I just thought of this in my head. It's risky when you tell a story you hadn't thought of before the sermon. But I'm going to try it. It's because it moved me so deeply. And I don't know why he's talking about New York since he's British. But Newton said, a man who is upset at God because of his diseases and because of his difficulties is like a man in a chariot, a carriage, on his way to New York City. To receive an inheritance of a million dollars. Now, when Newton is talking, that's 100 plus years ago. And so a million dollars is a lot of money. Still is, I suppose. And you keep going. And suddenly, clonk, and the back wheel fell off his chariot, fell off his carriage. And he gets out, and he looks at it, and he realizes he can't fix it to get there in time for the appointment where he's going to get his million-dollar inheritance. So he... He shrugs and he starts walking and all the way to New York, the last mile, he's saying, my carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. He says, that's the way Christians are when they murmur about their circumstance on the way to heaven. You got two seconds to live, folks, according to James, because that's how long a vapor lasts when you go on a Minnesota morning. You got two seconds to live and then you inherit the universe. All things are yours, whether Paul or Cephas or Apollos or life or death 
All things are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Why would you murmur on the way to New York? Because your carriage is broken. I'll tell you why. You don't believe it. Or you don't feel it. That the treasure that's coming to you in heaven is infinitely valuable. And it's just around the corner. So get your people free from their love of money. Do everything you have. There is more about money in the Gospels ten times over than there is about sex. That's the killer. We're greedy. We think we have to have endless securities and comforts around our lives when in fact we should be the most radical, risk-taking, let-it-go kind of people. That's number five. Number six, the suffering of my people has had a huge impact on my preaching. It has driven me to think and pray and write and preach about the sovereignty of God in suffering over and over again for the past 27 years. First summer in the pulpit at Bethlehem. You can go back and find it online. See when it happened. I came, I came to the church in July of, two, of 1980. One of my first sermons, maybe the first six, I can't remember, was called Christ and Cancer. Why did I begin that way? Why among the six things that I wanted to say to my people would I put a sermon called Christ and Cancer and take as my text Romans 8.23? Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit groan inwardly waiting for the redemption of our bodies, waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Why would I begin there? Very simple. In those days, third wave was on the horizon. Hadn't started yet. Third wave of the Holy Spirit. A lot of talk about signs and wonders, a lot of charismatic stuff going on, and I'm not opposed to it. And yet, theologically, Romans 8.23 settles it for me. I'm not getting well every time. And I'm going to die. And my death will probably be very hard. I've seen a lot of hard deaths in my life of very godly people. Old women stalwarts of prayer whose tongues are black like a cinder from dehydration crying out to die and God won't let them die and having hallucinations of demons dancing around their beds the most godly woman I knew I don't expect to die easy do you you got a theology for Ruth I knew that as a new pastor, I want my people to know what I believe about their sickness when I come to visit them in the hospital. Am I going to say to them, if you trust Jesus, you wouldn't be here. I want them to know beyond the shadow of a doubt, I'm not going to think that. I'm not going to say that. And I believe in divine healing with all my heart. And I pray for everybody who's sick that they'll get well. So a theology of suffering has just been all over me. And more recently, maybe it's the older I get, maybe it's terrorism, maybe it's 9-11. But when the Oakland freeway collapsed, remember those two flop right on top of each other like pancakes? We called off the preaching uh, text for that morning and preached from Hebrews. We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
because of the earthquake. I wanted to, it was so in the news. I'm not sure why it was, but it was so in the news, that Oakland earthquake. And then, of course, 9-11, everything shot down on 9-11, and we addressed it from Romans 8 again. Then the bridge falls down in Minneapolis, and, and then 4.30 a.m. yesterday, I got to bed at 3 o'clock Monday morning. And I said, Lord, give me, please, three good hours. I need three good hours. I won't make it. I'm 62. I need eight hours of sleep. I'm going to get three. And the phone rings at 4.30. Jasmine, 12 years old, is dead in her sleep. And the grandmother called me. I handed this off to Tom Steller. That's, I don't know what's happening right now because she's got a sister. The sister had the same symptoms when the ambulance got there. And she was in ICU at Hennepin County. You live with this. I, I just, I listen to some preachers. I think, you live in the world I do. I deal with so many absolutely horrible situations. I don't know how some pastors are as glib as they are. I just don't get it. I just am so amazingly out. Of, I just, I'll look at the television. I think, anybody got cancer in your church? Do any funerals? You ever seen anything horrible in your life that makes you want to throw up? Do you know that right now there are probably 5,000 people screaming their lungs out in this world because of intolerable pain? Suffering has a huge impact on the way I feel about life, the way I feel about the world, the way I feel about preaching. Number seven, two weeks ago I was preaching on the role of the word in the new birth from 1 Peter one twenty three. And that week, I had two encounters about yoga and mantra. And those encounters totally shaped the sermon for that Sunday. This is an illustration of how the week before can take an appointed text and totally shape it. And the way it shaped it was by simply contrasting. I said, I'm going to say what I want to say about 1 John, I mean, 1 Peter 1, 23, about through the living and abiding word, we are born again. But now I'm going to say it over against yoga and over against mantra to show how the word works here and how the word works here to make this more plain and to protect people from this. So that's just kind of the way it the way it can work in your life. You're walking along. You know what you're going to preach on. You know the main points. And whammo, you have a big experience. And it just, poo, it just gets dumped into your sermon for the sake of clarification here and protection here. Number eight. I live in a state where 40% of the people have a Roman Catholic background and 40% have a Lutheran background. So Garrison Keeler is totally intelligible. May not be here. Not sure. Be interesting to know how you react to those funny allusions. The effect on my preaching is that I'm keenly aware as I talk about some things I want to make clear over against sacramentalism. Certain baptismal understandings. So when I'm on the new birth and I see it connected to word of God, I'm aware that hundreds of people in this crowd are thinking, I don't think that fits with what I've been taught. Because I thought baptism was where we were regenerated. Because that's what the priest said. I've got to take that into account. 
I've got to make that plain. I'm talking to either present or post-Lutherans and Catholics and a smattering of sectarians like me thrown in. And therefore, I'm affected in what I emphasize by knowing that. Number nine, there is a synergy between pulpit and people when it comes to global, cross-cultural, frontier missions, and it goes both ways. A young couple in our church, 1980, 81, 82, I'll give you their name, David and Faith Yeager. They were students of mine at Bethel. They came to the church when I moved to the church from the professorship. And they were absolutely, amazingly, beautifully sold out to Liberia and the Gola people. Never been there, but they were going. They lived right across the alley from where I was. And we would talk endlessly about this thing. And I'm a pastor, not much into missions in the early 80s. Not much into global impact. And I'm, lock, I'm looking at this couple, and they're so real. And the goal of people are so real. And their sacrifice is ready to be so real. And I'm feeling, I'm out of touch. I'm, I'm out of touch. Had a huge impact on me. Came to Climax in 83, 84. Things changed. And then I began to herald and finally said enough. I put it in a book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And now... I'm, I'm pushing on the people of our church, dream a dream about leaving what you're doing and doing something else, especially among the unreached places of the world. They need you there more than they need you here. So dream that dream. And then a couple of hundred people are in our nurture program and they're moving in that direction. And I hang around those people and I get all fired up. And so it's going both ways. So last Sunday, what's this day before yesterday, Brad and Rachel Ibs, got one on this side, one on the side, little Marna little two-year-old in this arm, and they're going to a place I can't name in front of my people. When I got my hands on them, they're going to leave in March. They've been working on church planting among the poor in Phillips' neighborhood for six years, and now they've had it with that. They're on their way to the hardest place on the planet and one of the most dangerous, and they have a little baby in their arms. I had a man say to me one time because of my pushing on people like this, the unbelieving dad of a missionary, he looked at me and said, if my son doesn't come back, I will kill you. And I think he meant it. To which I was there, make my day. <laughs> your, your son, your son is an awesome missionary. Oh, that you would see what he's doing. And love what he's doing. He's laying out his life for this people. And you don't admire him. I love missions, and missionaries have a big, big impact on my pulpit ministry. Number 10, listening to feedback from sheep will keep you from making some really hurtful mistakes. For example, just give you one example. I was holding forth years ago on obesity. No, I was holding forth on gluttony, so gluttony, and I was just laying into gluttony. I'd seen enough of it. I mean, good night today. Article after article after article about how obesity is killing Americans and, and other parts of the world as well because we all eat bad and don't exercise. And so I'm, I'm saying what Jesus would think about gluttony. And in the process, I thoughtlessly 
used the term obesity as virtually interchangeable with gluttony. Made sense? A young woman, profoundly overweight in our church, I knew her, came up. No, she wrote me a note. We talked later. She wrote me a note. She said, uh, Pastor John, I agree totally that gluttony is a sin. But you need to understand that there are reasons for obesity that are not gluttony. And you don't know when you're looking at somebody what they're dealing with. You don't know their hormonal issues, and you don't know their, their brokenness issues. You don't know their abuse issues. You don't know anything. So be careful that you don't equate gluttony with obesity. And when she said it, I was just slain. And she's absolutely right. She ministered to me. She had the courage to get in my face and say, don't do that. And I could give you other illustrations of my carelessness in the use of language that brought people under condemnation where they didn't have any condemnation. And so listen to your sheep. They will help you avoid some terrible, hurtful mistakes. Number 11, listening to to people talk about their fathers who are unbelievers or absent or abusive or unemotional or drunk or unfaithful has had a profound effect on how I talk about the fatherhood of God and the way I try to help my people toward enjoying the fatherhood of God without naively assuming that if I lift him up as a glorious father, they're going to get it because they might not get it at all. And you know why that would be. And so I want to help my people believe that generational sin can come to an end, and you may be the end. It can end. You may be the end. Why don't you make it the end? Instead of using your dad as an excuse for why your kids are going to be a problem, why don't you be the place where it ends? Because none of us would be Christian if there weren't such a thing as an end to generational sin. Because Adam was a horrible sinner, and so it had to break somewhere. But I'm, I'm not cavalier about that, and I'm not quick to think that if I paint a beautiful picture of the fatherhood of God, everybody's going to automatically get it. There has to be more appreciation for process and care. I had an elder whose father called him, I don't know if I say it, it'll be too public, horrible names growing up. Just He, he would put his name together with a horrible word, boom, and just completely verbally abusive all the way growing up. He wasn't a believer. He went off to Duke University. If he listens to this tape, he'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And that'll be okay. He won't mind. And God saved him in the university at Duke. He memorized the book of Romans. And he memorized large chunks of Hebrews. And it was Hebrews 12 that rebuilt the fatherhood of God for him. They disciplined us according to their good pleasure. But he disciplines us for our good to share his holiness. He recited that entire section one time late at night to me and told me how God made the fatherhood of God sweet to him. Can happen. Number. I'm going to skip 12. In fact, I think I'm done. So the rest of these you can see online. What would be a good way to end? Let me see here. I will make a choice to how to end in one minute. I'll just name them. Okay, I'll just name them and then not say anything about them. Number 13 is how, to, how the need to raise money in your church 
like a building fund affects your preaching, how it should and how it shouldn't. Go to 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 3, and you'll see how. Number 14, racial diversity and racial harmony is a big deal to us. And listening to the right books, talking to people of color and and various ethnicities is a very important thing to do if you want to, to move into the pulpit in a way that is both uh, advancing and sensitive to that whole issue. And it's a big issue us for every Martin Luther King weekend. We're on that issue and it finds its way into sermons along the way. Number 15, closely related in our church is pro-life efforts. These are a couple of illustrations of social issues and how they move into the, into the pulpit. We, we do Martin Luther King and Sanctity of Life back to back. It is golden because one's for the Democrats and one's for the Republicans. <laughs> and, and you do that and you show we don't do that around here. We don't do Democrat. We don't do Republican. We are subjects of King Jesus. And so we hate the killing of babies and we hate racism. Call us what you like. So that makes its way into the pulpit when you look around and see all the... You can walk to three abortion clinics from our church. You can walk there and you won't be exhausted, about 15 minutes away. And the last one was, I see the struggle that my people have with prayer. They find it very hard to pray. Very hard to spend any amount of time in prayer. So we devote a whole week to prayer. Pray preaching about it at the front and the back with the words stirred in. We do an all-night of prayer. We try to encourage people in how to pray, and it finds its way into the preaching throughout. I try to model it by praying before I preach to show how needy I am as a pastor. I build it into my family, and I think that's a good way to end because it stresses how desperate we are. Prayer should be the visible engine of your church. That's the way we talk about it anyway. The visible engine of your church is reliance upon God by putting your face in your hands and saying, God, I can't do this ministry because the things I'm after are miracles. They are the new birth and the transformation into holiness. They are triumph over the supernatural devil. They are escape from a supernatural hell and entrance into a supernatural heaven in the power of a supernatural Holy Spirit. I cannot control or make any of this happen. If that's true, wouldn't you pray a lot? Americans don't believe in prayer. We're too pragmatic. It just feels inefficient. You're sitting at your desk or kneeling by a bench or kneeling by a chair and doing nothing except talking to God and asking Him to change the world. And I like to get in Calvinist face and say things like, you have not because you ask not. That's a quote from the Bible. James chapter 4. You have not because you ask not. Meaning, if you had prayed, God would have saved that person. Calvinists don't like to hear that. That doesn't fit election. Well, it does. So I'll stop there. It really does. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forbid that any of these brothers and sisters would have to have you say to them at any point in their life or at the last day, you know, I would have done so much more for you if you had asked me. You stamped your arrows on the ground 
way too few times. I was ready to give you a great victory in the city or a great victory over your marriage problem or a great victory with your kids or a great victory with that difficulty in the church. And you, you were just so bent on finding your own solutions. You didn't pause with me. You didn't linger with me. You didn't seek my faith. Lord, get prayer into our hearts and prayer into our pulpits and through our pulpits, prayer into the lives of our people so that great things might be wrought through Acts 29 churches, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.